Welcome to VCR, a vintage cinema rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And I'm Michael. And we are covering The Third Man from 1949, right. doing a deep this is dive. Our sec- <laughs> you, you cut me right off. Um, this is ca- our- I've been doing that a lot today. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Uh, yeah, we're covering our first new noir film. This is the spoiler full discussion of this. So if you haven't seen this film before, I'm assuming if you haven't listened to the primer episode, you probably have not watched this film before. And I would recommend going and checking that episode out out first uh, because we're going to spoil a lot. You should go watch the movie because otherwise this episode is going to be very confusing. I remember like when I was getting my English degree, sometimes I would go to class without having read the story or the book. Mm-hmm. And then I just spend an hour sitting in the lecture hall being like <laughs> completely baffled, being completely baffled and being told all this stuff about something I wasn't familiar with. And that's what this is going to feel like for you. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I, I think that our audience that likes movies a little bit more than, you know, our audience that is maybe unfamiliar with older movies is really going to love this. I, th- I think this is one that you work back to. This isn't like, you know, I'm not going to just jump back to 1949 and see what's happening in American cinema at this period of time or British cinema in, in this case. I, I really would say, you know, follow follow what I say in the primer and, and how maybe Hitchcockian films kind of pull from some of the ideas and themes of something like this. Yeah, absolutely. With that being said, I think we can talk full spoilers now. We're going to start in front of the camera and work our way back. That's right. And where I actually want to start this, and I, maybe I should have talked about this in the primer episode, but I'm going to talk about it now. The film itself, like the the plot, is is relatively complex, detailed. It's pretty heavy in terms of the topic and the time period. Like this is post-war Austria and Vienna. And if you're somebody who's looking for escapism in films and a nice, neatly wrapped up happy ending... This movie is definitely not for you. (laughs) No, this is very much a like pick at the carcass kind of movie. You know what I mean? Like Holly is constantly turning over rocks, trying to figure out what happened to his best friend. And he and us as the viewer, we keep getting like manipulated and lied to and all this stuff. So and the movie gets darker and darker as things go on. Like it almost starts on a light note, despite, you know, basically starting in a gravesite and and watching Harry Lyme being buried. <laughs> yeah, so you know, just a pretty like jovial Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and and there's this juxtaposition throughout the film. Like there's there's a lot of juxtaposition throughout the film, but one of them is like we see beautiful aspects of Vienna and then we see bombed out shells of buildings and piles of rubble. Like there's there's so much going on throughout this film and, and, and showing us one thing and then presenting another kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. That even comes to mind with the music for me. Like the score of this film, the, which is called The Third Man, is in, in a sense like it starts off, it feels like very cheery, but I'm not sure if it actually was cheery by the end of the film no it got very should we talk about the music right now because yeah, it's something to it's, be talked about it's it's certainly one of the more important and iconic aspects of the film by far right for those of you listening at home the whole movie is essentially scored by one instrument a zither and and pretty much played very similarly like you know we're not getting a lot of different melodies or you know it sounds more or less like the same song playing continuously throughout and like there's some slight alterations and changes throughout the film but it's so similar and it's near constant throughout the film and that's also another comparison that i made in the primer episode to michael mann's works and having a very specific type of sound that he's going for when he's making a film and that's often tangerine dream this film has a very specific sound in it and what's weird about the the film and the score is i i know that the the score wasn't necessarily cheery but in a modern watch it it might i thought it was maybe just just a little too cheery for me in a in a modern sense can i throw a can i throw some cards on the table right now yep i did not like the score 
I I thought it felt weirdly out of place, but that's kind of the film in a nutshell is everything's weirdly out of place. Well, see, I remember watching, I first saw this movie in film school like 11 or 12 years ago and I didn't like it then. Mm. And now with like over a decade of experience, I still don't like it. But like when I go online, I just hear nothing but praise for how inventive the score is and how well it suits the movie and how uh, Steven Sonnenberg, the director, and some other writer, they actually did a DVD commentary for this movie. Mm-hmm. And I listened to that earlier today, and they were talking about how, like, this movie wouldn't work without that score. And I was listening to it like, I don't know, I think the movie might work a little better without it. So, <laughs> And you know what? As as a contemporary viewer, I, I agree with you. I, I actually had the exact same thought. I thought, I think that using a darker score would have been much better in in this film i do agree with the people who praise this movie that like this is there it's it is kind of interesting how like it can convey so many different like despite being one instrument like you know they can do a lot with it to like set a tone but like it just felt kind of weird and out of place and grating to me which maybe was the intention but it just didn't personally work for me no, and I like I said, I completely agree with you in that aspect. It 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 felt weirdly out of place, and that's what the film was kind of going for in like those little details I was saying. But it just it really didn't fit the mood of the film for me. It was so jarring in a sense. So we've already lost a lot of like film school purists right now. By, uh, <laughs> throwing okay. the zither guy under the bus, but Beca- yeah, because that's not necessarily us. the audience that we're interested in, right? Is like Fair we want to we want to talk like old movies and and introduce them to new viewers, and and in doing that, we have to think about the modern viewing experience, and and if you and I are on the same page with that, like I think that obviously they're all opinions, and your opinion can't be right or wrong, well, but. I will say, you know, we often say that I don't really notice scores, but there's one silver lining. I definitely noticed the score. <laughs> yeah, you you I, can't not notice this. Score. Yeah, I was like, oh, it's that. <laughs> like, I almost like to imagine that while Holly is like traipsing through Vienna trying to solve his best friend's murder, there's like a zither player that's like following him around. <laughs> like, like a mariachi har- band? Yeah, like harassing him. So, yeah, I don't know. It, uh... It's unique. Let's it's certainly put it unique. charitably. And it, that it's way. certainly very, very important to the history film. And it's something that that a lot of other directors incorporate these the kind of ideas of the score and it being omnipresent throughout having having like a score that, you know, really denotes the film, like having one central musical theme. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy to hear that you bounced off it as well because I was I was worried that I was the only one to be honest. I'm glad I'm not the only one too. I'm glad we, I'm glad, again, this is one of the few things we agree on in this podcast. Yes, usually, <laughs> like, actually, very much so. So if I show up at your wedding playing a zither, you're gonna have all the other groomsmen are gonna beat the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna bury you. Okay, and as Harry Lime, but should we talk about Harry Lime next? Because he's kind of the other big presence in this movie yeah harry lime is is the central figure he's i mean big spoilers here he is literally the third man (laughs) so as it turns out the third act opens with the revelation that harry lime is actually faked his death and he's alive and well this whole time yeah because he's one of the most evil sons of bitches to ever make his appearance on screen yeah he's a real scumbag so His his whole shtick was he was actually stealing penicillin from hospitals with the help of a hospital worker and then selling it back to them heavily diluted, which obviously, if you're not getting the right dosage of penicillin, that's not good. And so it as it turns out, as he's profiteering and racketeering and, and you know, stealing from people, he's he's causing all these mass infantile deaths. Yeah. And very irredeemable crimes, essentially. And, and you know, and you're probably gonna, about to talk about this, but he he's such an irredeemable person and character, and especially once 
we realize that Harry Lime is actually alive and, you know, him and Holly have their big confrontation. You know, he has absolutely no remorse for what he does. There's probably the most iconic, well, the second most iconic scene in the movie is Harry and Holly finally have their reunion at like this amusement park and they talk on this Ferris wheel. And the way Lime just like, justifies what he does there's a great line towards yes. the end of the scene where he says like holly asks him like don't you believe in god and harry says like i believe in god and mercy and all that but the dead are happier dead they don't miss much here those poor devils there's also that great moment where so they're at the top of the ferris wheel and harry opens the door and he basically just says like would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? He's like, if I told you you got 20,000 pounds for every one of those dots that stopped moving, would you feel sad or would you start crunching the numbers? Yeah. How many how many dots can you afford to spare down below? Like how many humans down below? How many of those little specks that don't matter in this perspective? How many of those are you willing to sacrifice? Yeah. And then at the end here, it's something I really appreciated. He goes, free of income tax. The only way you can save money nowadays. <laughs> yeah. And actually, funny enough, while I was doing my, my thought process of connecting this to Michael Mann, I was looking at the Thief poster and the catchphrase of the uh, Thief film is, tonight his take-home pay is 410000 tax-free. And I was like, there it is. There it is. The third man connection right there. Oh, my goodness. Well, actually, as long as we're uh, as long as we're talking about posters and stuff like that, I did want to bring up the third man has like the cheesiest tagline I've ever seen. I'm just pulling it up right now. (laughs) Okay. So the tagline for this movie is hunted by a thousand men haunted by a lovely girl. And (laughs) I saw that and I was like. I don't, I don't, I think you guys could have done better. <laughs> I don't know if the person who made that knew what the film was about. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe they just passed that off to the intern over like his lunch break. They're like, we need you to come up with something. Well, in two thirds of the film, we think that Harry Lime is dead. And you know what? Like I said, I suspected pretty quickly that Harry was the third man. As soon as they said that, I was like, I know where this is going. Well, Actually, Steven Sonnenberg brought this up in that commentary I mentioned that Orson Welles as Harry Lyme is barely in this movie, but Mm -hmm. he's all over like the marketing materials. Like Mm. he's on the poster. He actually, I think in some places he actually gets top billing, you know? Yeah. Steven Sonnenberg's point was like, it's not totally like it's a good twist, but it's not like a pure experience because like anyone walking into this movie is going to know, oh, like it's Orson Welles is in this movie at some point, right? And what I said in the primer episode is I really think that this film is more about the why than it is about the who. Because yeah. it's pretty obvious that the third man is going to be Harry Lyme, that Harry Lyme is actually alive and there's more to this story. And, and finding out how dastardly of a person he is, how unredeeming of a human being this man is, is is really what the story is more about. And And there's so much to think about in that sense, because even with Anna's character, the relationship that she has with Harry and how, you know, she knows that Harry is not a good person, but there's this pure kind of love for him. And there's also this acceptance for you do what you got to do kind of thing. Right. And yeah, her, she herself is a victim of this situation. And Harry was the one who actually provided her with her papers in order to, live in Vienna and and not be sent back to Soviet Russia. Yeah, and it's interesting how he seems to have gone out of his way to help her, but then you know, when him and Holly have that confrontation and Holly basically lays into him, he's like, "Oh, Anna's in all, all this trouble and like you could get her you could help her out if you just stepped forward." Mm-hmm. And Harry's basically like, "Ah, what could I do?" Like, you know, eh, like, you know, yeah. I'm dead. What could I do? Like, yeah. so 
you know. He doesn't actually care about her all that much. He's he's definitely in it for himself, even though she's absolutely head over heels for him. And but at the end of the day, like she's seen the horrors of war. Like she's she's lived through this, whereas both Harry and Holly both being American, I, like, I don't know that either of them have really ever saw any action in World War II. Like, they, they don't seem like the type of guys that ever experienced that. Definitely not Holly. Like, yeah. sorry, buddy. But uh, <laughs> there's a great scene where, like, he tries to punch out the major. And, right. And uh, he misses and then gets decked. And then later on, he's, like, holding his tooth. And someone says to him, like, do you need to see a dentist? He's like, no, someone just punched me in the face. <laughs> yeah. He's just and, whining uh, and nobody cares. <laughs> right. So I do think it's... I was thinking about this earlier today. It is... So this is a British film set in 1949. And there's two American characters. And the one is a drunk hack writer who's obsessed with cowboys who keeps sticking his nose places he doesn't belong. Yeah. And the other American is a war profiteer. Yeah. So there's definitely some commentary here. Oh, absolutely. And that's what's really interesting is is her relationship to all of this because it's pretty obvious that Holly Martins falls for Anna pretty quickly. Yeah. And falls for her. But she really doesn't reciprocate that at all in this film. There's one moment where it kind of seems like they're flirting with each other, but it passes pretty quickly. Yeah, because he's not going to be Harry Lyme. Like, he's never going to be the person that Anna loved. And she she was in. She was She was all in on Harry. Like, the fact that he went out of his way to help her, the fact that he was able to navigate the darkness of this post-war era is something that that she could really appreciate. And, and you know, there's this exasperated feeling that we get from all of the European characters, like the, this complete lack of apathy at, at this point in time, right? Like, everybody's just exhausted. Yeah. And just tired at this point of living, like, this period. And I think where the modern audience is going to connect to that is is in this post-COVID world, right? Like, this just exhaustion with the last couple of years. Like, you know, obviously World War II was so much worse and, and so oh, yeah. much more difficult to to survive and to, to try to rebuild afterwards. But I, I think that the closest we've come since then, uh, for a lot of us anyway, in, in, in the West, is, is COVID, really. And a in lot our of lifetimes, us, yeah. For sure. Anyone who's born in the last 30, 40 years, absolutely. Yeah. And again, that all ties back to Holly and, you know, what a kind of naive outsider he is and how he doesn't really belong in this world. Like, he doesn't really understand this city. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really understand these people. He doesn't really understand Anna or even his best friend, Harry. Yeah. So. You know, you do kind of feel for the guy at different points throughout the movie where you're just like, you don't really, like, you're really in over your head, bud. Like, you don't know what's going on. Yeah. No, I very much agree. What I want to say about some of the plot, I want to, I have a I have a nitpick here. And I don't always have nitpicks, but I've got a big one. Okay, what's your nitpick? The timeline of this film is somewhat confusing. And I think that more could have been done to make sense of why Holly shows up and Harry Lyme's just being murdered. That's a good point. I was I was quite confused and I kept expecting there to be some exposition from Harry as to why he faked his death right before Holly Lyme shows up or Holly Martin shows up. Yeah. That is it. I never even really thought about that, but that's interesting. That was that was my primary mode or the primary question that I had uh, throughout the film, and it, it was never really answered. And I actually had to do some digging online to see if I had missed the explanation, because again, there was points in time where I, I sometimes struggled with the dialogue, but it, it was just kind of something that really wasn't touched on. And part of that was, so we have to kind of put ourselves back in this era of 1949, this post-war era. And Back then, news travels relatively slow. So if we think about it in this kind of sense, let's say that Harry's back in America. And I don't remember if it ever said where he was from in America. 
I don't think it did, no. But uh, let's say he's from California, for example. It might sure. take six to seven weeks for the letter inviting Polly to Austria to come work for Harry. That might take upwards six, seven weeks to get to him. And then, mm-hmm. you know, if he spends a couple weeks thinking about it and then he decides to, you know, start traveling, that could take several more weeks for him to travel across America and then across the ocean to go uh, meet up with Harry in Austria. Like, you know, we're not at the point where there's big commercial airlines at this point, right? Like, everything moves kind of with a slowness. So, you know, we could be three, four months of of that point in time when Harry writes a letter to Holly saying, you know, come work for me in, in Vienna. I might just have a job for you. And Holly arriving there. And in that time period, this is where maybe the police and the heat starts to kind of come down on on Harry. And Harry decides, you know what, I've got to pull the trigger and fake my own death to kind of escape the heat here. Yeah, he almost for- he forgets about his best friend and then... Well, it's it's kind of more of a a convenience of timing or an inconvenience of timing really to to the story. And mm-hmm. and this again and you know what almost almost comically this is again comes back to Holly being inconvenient throoughout the film, right? Like he's an inconvenient <laughs> yeah. character in this story. And you know what's funny is that like it's not like once Harry finds out about him, he's like, "Oh, cool. Like somebody tell him." Like Harry's associates really try to like wrongfoot him and send him on his way. Right. It's not until Harry confronts the one guy, the violin player, and basically says like, "I want to see Harry." That Harry's finally like, "Okay, I'm here." Like, yeah, know? yeah. Like, Before he he's just almost... turns too many stones up. Yeah, and then once he does, he's like, "Okay, like maybe I can cut you in," and blah blah blah. But it's really like, even Harry didn't really want him there at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... There's just too much going on at this point in in Harry's life and profiteering and and trying to keep up the charade of being dead but also pulling all the strings from uh the dark shadows dark shadows i'm just gonna say i do have another quibble about this movie okay actually it ties into what we're talking about holly's whole motivation aside from like drunkenness and stupidity is you know clearing his dead friend's name and finding out what happened to him right and all that stuff. So that's kind of set up as like the emotional core of the movie, at least in part. But like, it's Holly's guess, emotional core anyway. Holly's emotional core, yeah. But like, I guess my big complaint about this movie is that I never really, I would have, I never really got a huge sense that like Holly and Harry were like the best of friends. You know what I mean? Like, we're told, like, Holly, Holly mentions at one point that like, you know, he was really lonely as a child in school and then Harry showed up and then everything was great. And he's obviously very upset about what happened and he doesn't like the implication that, you know, the major thinks Harry was involved in illicit dealings. But like, I would have liked more of a sense of friendship between these two. Yeah, we you know never really mean? got to build a bond between the two of them, right? We're, we're just told about the bond that they had as children. And even and maybe... that's pretty shallow. I would say I would agree with you. And maybe it ties into the whole idea that Harry is just kind of this shark, right? Like, right. You know, maybe he doesn't really value Holly as much as he pretends to. Well, but then even though, even though I'm actually, I'm going to renege on that. Cause after the amusement park scene, he basically says, all right, like if you want to talk to me, just tell me and I'll come out of hiding. Yeah. Right? And I'll help. Like you can hop in on, on my uh, shtick and, and we can, we can continue doing this and yeah, and off like of this. So Holly finally decides to do the right thing and work with the major to bring Harry down. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when Harry's cornered, he looks so shocked. Like it never even occurred to him that Holly would betray him. Yeah. And honestly, so what I'll say about that is I do agree with you. I, I think that it could have been, I think the writing of their relationship could have had more depth to it. But what I actually kind of considered them to be was a couple of misfits who kind of who ended up together out of necessity, like Holly, this drunk, romanticizing American man who doesn't really fit into a lot of society and, you know, is obviously very oblivious to a lot of the people and the emotions around him. And Harry just being this, 
you know, complete profiteer and and constantly looking for an edge, right? Yeah, a con man. Yeah, and I think that I've seen these two characters come be- together before in other film and other literature that I thought that there could have been something there, and I, I, but I, I, again, I very much agree with you. I would have liked a little bit more depth between the two characters as well. Yeah, but I guess again, this movie, it there isn't really the time or the space for that. No, I, I would have liked. Yeah, in a perfect world, I would have liked to have had my cake and eat it too. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. We haven't really talked about Harry's reveal scene. It's a very cool use of the black and white cinematography here to have him completely hiding in the shadows and then the light turn on and his face just be there grinning looking uh back at holly like that's that's a pretty iconic scene yeah that's gonna be one of the best reveals in all of cinema like yeah especially earlier like the scene before he's at anna's apartment and he's trying to play with her cat and she basically just says oh the cat only liked harry and then Right. The cat immediately leaves the apartment and we just see the cat like make a beeline to this figure cloaked in shadows. So instantly we're like, (gasps) so. And again, this is where if you're not interested in black and white film, I would say watch this scene. And and the other scene that really popped for me in the black and white aspect is when the police are on to Harry and they kind of stage this this trap to catch Harry in and we get that you know it's it's dark it's the middle of the night in Vienna and the streets are all lit up and we get that shadow of that figure walking down the street with balloons oh, yeah. um and there's like this big shadow that's on on the building as as it's he's walking and it's so eerie you're like what is harry doing like why does harry have these balloons and as it turns out it's just this creepy clown yeah it's just this old man with balloons yeah yeah and he's trying to give balloons to the police men and stuff like that it's it's like such a eerie scene and and again this is a callback to that weird offness throughout the film and and this this is one of those like cornerstone moments of that you gotta give the balloon guy credit though like he does get pain to buy a balloon (laughs) yeah that guy was on his hustle oh 100 everybody everybody's got to find their hustle in post-war uh vienna pain was a really actually my favorite character was the major major calloway yep and a close second would have been pain his like lieutenant yeah the one who actually had read holly's um Pulp Books. Fiction, essentially, yeah, yeah, and actually knew Holly as a writer. I I really appreciated him as well. I thought he was a very, a very light character. Like you know, he and and that probably again is is something that's so well done in in a film noir film like this. Is he's like easily the character that I was most able to connect to. Like there was there was a naivety, but there was like an optimism about him, right? That not a lot of the other characters shared. He was definitely, he was kind of like Holly in the sense that, like, you know, he'd been through a lot, but he was still a pretty nice guy, all things yeah. considered. Like, yeah. Also, he's just, he's a good punchline machine for when you just yes. need to bring some levity into scenes. Like, yes. There's that great scene where Calloway wants to show Harry something on his projector, and he has Payne, like, load the slides in, but he goes to point at the screen, and instead of, like, a picture of the suspect, it's a picture of a rhinoceros. Mm-hmm. And he just very calmly looks over to him and he's like, pain, pain, pain. And <laughs> Sergeant Payne's like, sorry, sir, got them a bit muddled. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. he's a really great character. I, I really appreciated his use throughout the film. And yeah. But like I said, and this is where, again, the film noir comes back. He's really the only character that dies outside of oh, yeah. Harry. And, and that's just like one more twist of this this knife you know that nothing good can come out of post-war vienna that's almost the only time we see calloway like lose his composure like he's so straight-laced the whole movie and then that happens and you see like just the shock and grief on his face right yeah it's so exactly what a film like this needed was was the only cheery character that you truly can connect to be killed (laughs) get shot in the gut too yeah like yeah. yeah, by the most despicable human being. 
And and we haven't even talked about actually where that scene takes place. We actually spend a good portion of the film in the sewers of Vienna, which is one of the most well-used settings I've ever seen. Like it it's such a cool use of a sewer that uh, there's so many films that have, you know, utilized the sewer since, but this is really the cornerstone of of sewers in film. It's almost like and then at the end when Harry's being chased by the cops and it almost becomes like this this like labyrinth that's like closing in on yeah. him and that he can't escape. Like yeah, I was getting a little I was getting a little anxious watching it. I was It was it was really incredible. Like uh, like I said, I really really liked that scene a lot. And that's actually something that a lot of a lot of where they were filming that was actually the real sewers of Vienna. Like you can actually take tours of Vienna's sewers now because it's so massive and so grand in in the sense that we saw it as and there's a great line where so calloway and martins finally figure out that you know harry has been using the sewers for like tra- to like right. slip in and out of shadows throughout the city and they're standing down there and calloway has that great line where he says like we should have dug deeper than the grave <sighs> yeah there's i i really loved this i sorry i didn't love this movie necessarily but i really like this movie a lot um and it's it's moments like that that i really appreciated so what else did i want to talk about we haven't talked about the other quote that harry had like this is one of the most famous quotes of the movie and and in film period the cuckoo clock scene which is right after they got off of the the ferris wheel and and after harry's kind of made his pitch to holly this is really the first time that holly truly grasps how inhuman harry is and and really understands for the first time what these people of vienna are grappling with i actually have the quote written down right here do you want me to read it yeah go for it so yeah it's the amusement park all that stuff just before harry leaves he says in italy for 30 years under the bourgeois they had warfare terror murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. And you know what that made me think of? It made me think of Walter White in Breaking Bad. (laughs) Okay. I don't know why, but it just, I, I just thought of Walter White when I heard that quote. Okay, interesting. And his transformation into into an evil evil man kind of thing yeah and i guess watching that scene again after all these years i was kind of like what exactly is harry trying to say in this moment is he basically i guess my reading of it was like he's basically saying like yeah like i'm doing terrible things and making life worse but hey like maybe i'm making things better for them culturally like he's trying to like justify it his actions to holly yeah, he's he's basically saying like under a boiler pot in this time of great disruption and gloom, it creates what is it? There's a, there's a saying that it's something like tough times create Oh, it's tough that men. fucking quote that the manosphere really loves to bandy about. It's like hard men create good times good times create weak men weak men create hard times something yeah. like that and and yeah. i think that's kind of in the same vein as what harry's saying essentially i guess so yeah so harry is a uh, harry's been red pilled he's been spending too much time on reddit <laughs> yeah uh, all that stuff absolutely harry would fit in with that group more than uh <laughs> the group that <laughs> yeah that the most of us live in <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we didn't alienate a portion of our audience just yeah, now. But true. <laughs> I wanted to talk about Holly's, or it's not Holly's, um, Anna's relationship to Harry. Because it's something we ki- I kind of touched upon in the primer episode. How mm-hmm. how much she loves Harry and how she's, she's a product of this time, right? Like, she's yeah. been through this horrible, horrible war. And she she's barely made it out alive she's had to fake all of her documents just to even be able to live in vienna without being deported back to the soviet union 
And all of this is thanks to Harry, who was able to forge her documents, essentially, and allow right. her to live there. And that's something that she appreciates more than anything else in this world, is, is what Harry did for her. Right. And nothing that Harry ever does will ever change her view of what he did for her. Because that's something that I would say we kind of see a little bit throughout this film is is there's kind of a what's in it for me kind of feeling throughout this, right? Because yeah, because of the situation that all of these characters find themselves in, you know, nobody's coming to help them. Like everybody's just trying their best to like hold these threads together. They don't have time to like help somebody, help their neighbor or something like that kind of thing, right? Well, there's a great scene with the porter when he admits that there was a third man to Holly and Holly basically says, why didn't you tell the police? And the porter's like, oh, I don't want to get involved. Like, are you kidding? Like, yeah. this isn't any of my business. Like, Yeah, exactly. And But he's not wrong either because he's oh, murdered but, but because of it. He has a change of heart and he decides he wants to help and then immediately gets killed for it. Exactly. And, and yeah. so that's like, again, like that's showing us what this world is like, what these all of these people are grappling with at this time period. And the, the police are, like I said, they're just as exhausted as everyone else. Like, at the beginning of this film, Holly is saying there's something very wrong with what happened here. There's All of these facts are not quite adding up, and the police are like, well, we don't... We don't have the time or the resources to deal with this. He's buried. We're moving on with our lives. Yeah, actually, like... Calloway's whole thing basically from the start is to Holly he's basically just like yo you need to leave like you're gonna just upset things here like you need to just leave yeah so you don't understand how things work and and that's only gonna make things worse for everyone and and again that's something that drew me in more just like it drew Holly in more and that's probably my gung-ho optimism that I have that I'm known for uh just making me connect to Holly Martin's I guess so, yeah. <laughs> There's a I little bit of sarcasm say, like, in that, but I liked I liked Calloway a lot, the major, just because like he definitely seemed like a good man trapped in a very hopeless situation who was nevertheless trying his best to do the right thing. Like Yes. There's that scene, so like he has to confiscate Anna's forged passport. And then there's a scene later on where he's in his office and like his superior, or I think it's the guy from like the Russian zone. He's like, hey, where's that passport? Like we need to process her. And he kind of just looks like, oh, like, are we really going to bring her in for that? Like Mm -hmm. he seems like he's willing to let it slide. But then the Russian guy or his superior won't. And then like on rewatch, like I watched a few of the scenes again today and like in a lot of those scenes, like. He is kind of, like, cold and aloof, but, like, he is, like, looking out for Holly the whole movie. Yeah, oh, absolutely he is. There's a great scene where he basically says, like, you know, after Calloway explains everything to him, at this point, Holly has gotten in trouble with the police. Calloway basically says, like, look, I'll clear things up with the police. Go back to your hotel. Like, just stay at the hotel. You'll be safe there, and then we'll get you a plane ticket out of here. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, he's, he is, like, he doesn't really like Holly all that much, but he's still looking out for him. Yeah, and and I think it's he just he just knows how out of his depth he is in all of this, and like he's looking out for a child essentially. Oh, so, yeah, essentially. Um, yeah, he's like, I can't, I can't let this guy run around unsupervised. He's gonna get himself killed. Yeah, there's I one actually my favorite quote in the movie is probably from Calloway. It's when Holly's confronting him about something. And Calloway basically just said to him, I told you to go away, Martins. This isn't Santa Fe. I'm not a sheriff and you're not a cowboy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're kind of wrapping up our discussion of in front of the camera. Let's talk about the end of the movie. The Mm -hmm. very, very iconic end of this movie. What punctuates the film noir aspect of this film. You know what I'll say about this is so we end the film very similar to how we began the film in a cemetery burying Harry Lime. All by, for real this time. For real this time. Hopefully. <laughs> and, you know, all of the characters that we meet in the opening scene are there together, minus the characters who have died or who we've realized are the criminals. 
which really just leaves us with Holly, Anna, and Major Calloway. And after the burial happens, Calloway and Holly are driving away, and they need to make Holly's departure. I think, I can't remember if it's a flight out or if it's just a train. Something like that. But they do not have a lot of time before it, it leaves. As they drive away, very similar to the opening of the film, they drive by Anna solemnly walking away from the funeral. And Holly has this, you know, heroic moment almost, right? Like this, like, heroes, I'm I'm going to get the girl moment kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And he gets off. He tells Callaway, you know what? I can't leave. I, I can't do that. And Callaway's like, no, you, like, you actually have to leave like he's like dude come on <laughs> I, i'm finally about to get rid of you i um, desperately want you out of this city yeah <laughs> but he does get off the car and he goes and stands off to the side of the road and we get this very long shot of this fall scene where the leaves are falling off the trees and anna walks up to him very slowly the music's playing very loudly the leaves are falling. It's a very beautiful shot. Very beautiful shot. And she just keeps walking and she walks right on by him. Oof. And and she walks like pretty much right by the camera and then walks out of the camera. And then Holly lights a smoke and that's how the film ends. Yeah, and that's where we leave Holly. Just he's just shot his best friend. Yeah. He's been rejected by the girl and he's just standing there dejectedly at the side of the road and what i really love about this because this is like i loved the ending of this film it's a great final shot yeah it's not only is it a great final shot it's anchored in such a realism to to what this scene and what these people actually would have done because mm -hmm. i truly believe that the drunk romanticizing writer that that holly is would have truly believed that he could have won anna over but anna and we didn't really we did talk about anna and how much she loved holly or uh, harry but when when she realizes that holly's going to sell harry out to the cops she turns on holly immediately and tries to warn harry that they're the police are on to him right like she is deathly worried for harry's life yeah it's like a pure irrational love against yes. all odds yeah but it's too late by then harry's already the noose is already tightened around his neck yeah uh, but like what i'm what i'm saying here is that like i truly believe that anna absolutely loved harry and was willing to look past all of that evil to love whatever what he did for her and so for holly to betray him is a core betrayal to her and and to her character and so her just walking away like that is is it's so incredible it's so so perfectly in character that i was i was just completely like enamored by it <laughs> and it was i'm glad you were enamored by it i don't think i've ever heard you use that word but <laughs> it's also perfectly in character for holly in the sense that like He's basically trying to stick a Pulp Fiction ending onto this movie. He's like, right. well, I did the right thing. I'm the hero. Heroes get the girl, right? Like, yeah. this is how, you know, this is how one of his Westerns would end. Mm -hmm. And instead, he's just left standing at the side of the road. With nothing. Smoking a lonely cigarette. Like, yeah, yeah. he's, it's like, no, dude, this is reality. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't, you don't get the girl. So. Yeah. What, what were your thoughts on that ending? No, I loved it. I actually, that's one of the things I remembered from all those years ago watching it in film school. Mm -hmm. Just him being left stranded on the side of the road. Just like, eh, like, yeah. forget it, Holly. It's Vienna. So. And the music plays us out. Yeah. And but it's much more like there's a sadness to it at this point in time, right? Yeah. And I mean, again, I don't hate Holly. Like, he's not a, he's kind of a doofus, but he's not a bad guy. Right, and he does do the right thing at the end, but it's also kind of like, I think in the novella, he does end up leaving with Anna. Yes. But I think one of the producers or somebody argued like, no, 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 no. Like this does, this can't end with these two hooking up. And that was the right call. I very much agree. And that was actually a big point of contention 
on the set. And let's move into effects and filming at this mm-hmm. point. And and that's what I one of the items that I wanted to touch on. Graham Greene, the the writer of the film, actually really did want that happy ending, even though like a lot of his other stories that he had written had bleak, depressing endings to them. Man after my own heart. Yeah. And and so he had Holly and Anna ending up together at the funeral. So so this is the contrast here in the producer that you mentioned, who who is actually known for Hollywood endings, like these happy endings, um, these are very American endings. And like, you know, the characterization of Holly is Hollywood. Like like yeah. it's literally in the name. He's oh, like the, I never made he's that the personification. I'm just right. coming up with it now, honestly. <laughs> I wonder he's if that per- was intentional, but I don't I have no idea actually. But he's the personification of Hollywood. And Harry Lyme is the personification of post-war Europe. And and every other character in this film is the personification of post-war Europe, like Anna and Calloway and everybody else. And this ending is is so out of character for Hollywood. And and these are why I love these kind of endings. I love a good dark ending. Really? I didn't I didn't know you liked that. I love me a good dark ending. Oh, okay. That's part of the reason why I love Breaking Bad so much. It Fair like enough. the the last second to last episode of Breaking Bad is one of the darkest and most incredible episodes of TV ever made. Yeah, that's some cold shit. I liked yeah. it as well. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why our friendship has endured throughout these decades. <laughs> is it's a mutual morbid sense of like morbid attitude towards humanity yeah and and you know what and this is probably part of the reason why i don't connect with modern hollywood and a lot of modern modern hollywood films is we have to have these happy hollywood endings like like even like the mcu right like if this is the obvious like example here because it's the only reason why hollywood still exists is People want to go to the movies for escapism and people want that happy ending, that that ending that carries you off your feet and out of the movie theater, joyously triumphant. But I, I want that gut punch at the end. I want to feel something at the end of my movie. And this was yeah. this was it. Yeah, and I mean, he just shot his best friend in the sewers. Like, what do you Yeah? <laughs> like, how is this how is this supposed to turn out well for you, dude? Like yeah, and and Anna's the love of Anna's life as well, right? Like, and e- even though Harry doesn't necessarily reciprocate it in the same way, and I think that, I think that Harry does actually love Anna, and he does call her a great girl at some point. But Harry's idea of love is is dark and twisted, just like he is. It's right? very self serving. Like actually. Yeah. Um, Steven Sodenberg put it pretty well in that commentary where he says like he loves Anna when it's convenient. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And but that's that's his way of loving somebody, I think, in my mm-hmm. opinion. And that's that's as close as you're going to get with that kind of a character. Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I was completely like I don't know. I I loved this ending. I loved this ending. These are the kind of endings that I, I like to see in a film. You know, you and I talked about Network, like when I did the movie draft, and the ending of Network is is so bleak and cynical that like I was like I wasn't I couldn't not love that kind of an ending for that kind of movie. Well, you gotta admire like the swing too, right? Like, oh yeah. I oh mean, yeah. I'm sure I don't this I'm sure if this movie was like an American production at the time, some producer would have been like, um, no, that's not how we're ending this movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Like the hero gets the girl. It's written in the constitution. <laughs> so uh, But yeah, again, without that ending to this film, I think I would have been much lower on this movie. Yeah, that's easily the most iconic final easily the most iconic shot of the movie is her just leaving him yeah. standing there all alone. Absolutely. All right, let's move more into effects and filming here. So um we talked about how iconic the sewer scenes are and, and how great of a set and setting that is. Funny enough, Orison Wells absolutely refused to be filmed in Vienna sewers. I heard that, yeah. Honestly, I don't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that was like he showed up so he showed up late. And then several on his first weeks day late. Of, he showed up very several days late to shooting. Several weeks really, late. 
Oh, several weeks. Okay, so he was really pulling a Marlon Brando. <laughs> yes. And on his first day, they tried throwing him in the sewers. And he was like, no. Like, are you he kidding? was like, that place is full of disease. It's disgusting. I'm not going down there. So every scene that we see a close-up of Orson Welles down the sewers is actually him filming on a set in London. And all of the other characters running around the sewers are actually running around the sewers of Vienna. Wow. So they were team players. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um. So the the way the split, they, they said the split was, was it was about 80% filmed in Vienna and about 15% filmed in London. Mm. And they mostly used a body double, actually, for Orson Welles uh, instead of actually using Orson Welles, again, because of how difficult it was to keep him on set at any given time. Yeah, I, I would like to know more about Orson Welles, because I guess he was kind of a raconteur in his time. Yeah. I actually I actually read that um, I guess the body double they got didn't have as broad a shoulders as Orson did. Right. So they, I guess Carol Reed just had him keep the hanger on while he was wearing the jacket, so his mm-hmm. shoulders would look bigger. Mm-hmm. But like... That's kind of the charm about old movies like this is that they didn't have CG. They didn't have green screen. Like they just had to fucking make do with what they had. Yeah. Like I also heard again on that commentary that like because Orson Welles was so late and delayed filming, they ended up shooting a lot of extra stuff because they were just like, well, we got to do something. <laughs> so yeah. Well, and you know have... what? That That's even comparable to like Die Hard, right? Like they, they only had... Um, Bruce Willis for a limited period of time and because of that we get so much more depth to all of the other characters that end up working in the film's favor and that's very similar in this case as well and the other thing I wanted to mention was again this is kind of effects in filming but I guess this is another one of those classic movies that nobody thought would work and nobody really wanted to work on yeah but it somehow it turned out to be one of the greatest film noirs and I think for a long time it was considered one of the great the greatest British film of all time. Well, and and you know, touching on legacy a little bit here, there is several people, very important people who consider this one of the greatest films of all time, including Roger Ebert. Uh he he thought that this was maybe his favorite film. Um it definitely was on his great films list, and I've already talked about Breaking Bad. Um, Vince Gilligan, this is his favorite film and a heavy inspiration for Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, along with The Godfather. So connection between those connections, all of those as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It won an Oscar for best cinematography under the black and white category, which I, I didn't realize was a thing. But in this particular time period in Hollywood, this is like right around the time where the colored pictures are coming out, right? And so Hollywood actually creates two categories for cinematography and for a couple other categories to have black and white and colored films and and separate them in that sense. And I think that's actually a smart idea at that point in time when the film industry is split so 50-50 between the two because, like I said before in the primer episode... There's a lot you can do with black and white cinematography that you can't do with color and vice versa. I guess so. That's an interesting point. I absolutely loved the shadowing and, and you know, the the scene with the, the man with the balloons coming up and the way Orson Welles appears out of nowhere kind of thing. Like, stuff like that, it doesn't quite work the same way in a colored film. Hmm. The other connection here, because... Obviously, there has to be something from my childhood that made direct reference to this film or parodied this film. The the direct reference I have here, and this is probably again for the millennials out there, Pinky and the Brain had an episode that directly rips this story off from. Oh my god, of course they did. (laughs) Of course they did. And uh, it unlocked a core memory of mine of, of Pinky and the Brain. So so you were I, getting like Pinky and the Brain flashbacks watching this movie. I guess so. I, di- I didn't realize that until after. I knew that there was okay. something that I had seen as a child that references, much like Cape Fear was referenced by The Simpsons. I was like, what's the reference here? Where do I know this from my childhood? I'm just picturing was- you watching this movie just being like, I feel like there should be more rats in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, should be more rats, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. 
The other thing I wanted to say as well is that the Vienna Police Department actually has a special unit that basically their sole mission is to patrol the sewer system of Vienna because of how how large and how grand it is like that is something that criminals use to smuggle drugs and and other uh stolen items through the city which is really cool that it it kind of connects to a modern day you know that modern day under city it's the Vienna branch of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, it's a seedy underground, underbelly of this city. Yeah. That, that actually does exist. <laughs> and funny enough, the uh, police officers in the film were actual off-duty officers of this unit. So this is something we've seen in other crime films as well, where the, the inspirations to these films actually do get a bit of screen time. I Yeah, I did read that the whole movie basically came about because Graham Greene was touring Vienna, he took a tour of the sewers, and then he heard about a penicillin racket, and he was basically just like, okay, like, that's a movie. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 for sure. Like, he he did go and tour Vienna and, and hear all these stories and get all these firsthand stories, which he compiled. And it was a Times Journal correspondent who actually kind of showed him around and, and gave him all the inspirations of the black market at this time period of time. Hmm. I, I almost forgot, actually, um, in terms of p- other people who love this, Jack White of The White Stripes, this is one of his favorite movies, and he actually named his record label Third Man Records in homage to this film. Huh. So that's that's kind of neat, and, and obviously with how important the score of this film is to a lot of scores after this and, and the way scores are used, that's kind of cool. I did read Roger Ebert's review of this. Um, I don't always read his reviews for films because I don't always agree with his takes. Mm -hmm. But I thought he summed up this film really perfectly in this paragraph here. He said, The third man reflects the optimism of Americans and the bone weariness of Europe after the war. It's a story about grown-ups and children, adults like Calloway who have seen at first hand the results of Lyme's crimes, and the children like the trusting Holly who believes in the simplified good and evils of his Western novels. Yeah, you got to give it to Ebert in that one. Yeah, he he just went like you know right for the gut there, like uh, or right more for like the right for the there. throat. Yeah, but, sorry, yeah. he went right for the throat there. <laughs> but that really sums up the movie for me. Is is this is a bigger tale than the characters? that we're seeing being portrayed. Mm. And this is a representation of, of the struggles of, of Europe trying to rebuild after world war two and all of the horrors that took place. Yeah. And the fact that this is a British film too, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think an American crew in 1949 could have made this movie. No, I agree. Mm -hmm. So let's talk our personal reviews in the partner factor. I don't know which one of us should go first this time. Why don't you go first? Okay, so you thought I was going to be low on this film. Just given my history of me picking movies on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually something we haven't talked about yet. So I will say that I really, really like this movie a lot. Like I, This is definitely in consideration for my favorite black and white film of all time. Okay, nice. I'm glad you liked it. I really, really like this movie. I definitely have to rewatch it. Like I felt after I watched this movie, I was like, I immediately was like, I want to restart this movie and rewatch it knowing everything that I know. Mm-hmm. Because I think that this is a movie that benefits from multiple watches. Kind of like you said with eight and a half, but I actually believe it this time. <laughs> you thought I was full of shit. <laughs> about eight and a half. There's no amount of times that I watch eight and a half that I will like it, Michael. <laughs> But anyway, something that we haven't talked about at all yet is the camera work in this film is absolutely incredible. Like the use of Dutch angle in this film to portray the characters and just to portray like the emotions of the characters and and again the the out of placeness of of Holly and the wrongness of everything going on. Like I just loved the use of the Dutch angle in this film. And, and Mm. it's something that I don't think we get enough anymore. And, and this film is like the Dutch angle movie (laughs) to the point where no battlefield earth is the Dutch angle movie, but this one is a close (laughs) second. (laughs) That's fair. I've never seen battlefield earth. Okay. Every shot in that movie is a Dutch angle. Nice. Infamous. (laughs) that's hilarious i love the use of black and white like i said this is one of my favorite black and white films now 
the setting of post-war Austria is like mm, chef's kiss for me. Like, I don't think we get enough of these post-war era films, especially today. Like, we're we're more interested with the idea of war and and the actions of the heroes who fought in the wars, but we never get to see like these people struggling to live in this post-war era and that is something that i i really appreciated this kind of perspective and the use of holly as well you know you and i have already talked about something like big trouble in little china where kurt russell is thinks he's the hero of the film but he's really not and i always really love to see that i don't know what it is but i i love to see the thinks he's the hero of the story, but really isn't kind of characters. There is something pretty audacious about that kind of storytelling. And yeah, like even Mad Max to an extent, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, like he's kind of just along for the ride. Yeah. So we're talking like my favorite kind of films, essentially. So for me, what isn't there to love here? So I guess this means at some point, just as a personal gift to you, I have to write a book where the main character isn't the main character. Yeah, but he doesn't know it. And maybe we don't even know it at first, right? Because we think that Holly is the main character of this film. But, you know, it takes a lot of this movie for us to really realize how incapable and how inept he is. Yeah. And all the other characters know. But, you know, he does seem to be pulling at the threads, like you said. And he doesn't let sleeping dogs lie. But, like, maybe he should. (laughs) This is going to be a weird comparison. But he almost kind of reminds me of, like, Rorschach from Watchmen. Mm -hmm. In the sense that, like, Holly pretty correctly deduces right away that something's wrong. Yeah. But the conclusions that he comes to are dead wrong. Right. Kind of like Rorschach. Like, in Watchmen, Rorschach comes to the conclusion pretty quickly that Edward Blake, the comedian, was murdered. But he's way off base about who actually did it or why. Right. And so I had this thought as well while I was kind of trying to gather all of my thoughts together and, and come up with, like, what I thought of this film. The thought that I had was, you know, that the plot of this film is is relatively straightforward. It's relatively predictable. Like, as soon as you hear there's a third man, you're like, okay, Harry's alive and and he's obviously in on his own death. Like, I don't know how this is kind of all played out. I don't know why this is all played out as it has but it's pretty clear to me that somewhere in this city, Harry is still alive and doing whatever he was doing beforehand. But again, that's where, as the movie progresses, as I, I find out more of the why, I realize that it was about the why all along. And it was mm-hmm. about this this setting and this period. And I don't know, maybe I'm a sucker for period pieces as well or something. I guess so. I'm figuring out more of your weaknesses. <laughs> but... Because of that, because of my realization of what this film is truly about, like I realized I didn't actually care about the predictability of this film. That's fair. Yeah, and that's kind of my summary. Jess didn't really watch this with me. I don't think I this think would be would. a movie. Yeah, I didn't think, <laughs> don't think this would be a film for her. But I, I, I actually really, really like this one, and I think Jason would like this as well. Um, I know right. he hasn't watched it yet, but I think I'm going to tell him that he should check this one out. Um, for me, I did like this movie a lot when I saw it in film school, but it's a movie that on rewatch, I don't think I liked as much. Interesting. Yeah. And this is, this is going to sound cheap, but I just, I was a little bored by this movie at times. Mm-hmm. So like, I acknowledge how great it is at what it does, but I just, it, I didn't quite get into it. I kind of like. You know, I was the square peg in the round hole of this movie kind of thing. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, yep. I, I watched over the course of two days. You know, I appreciated it. I it's I think I've said this before about other movies. It's like, I more admired this movie than I liked this movie. Yep. I think fair. I'd give it another chance somewhere down the line. But, yeah, I'm not quite as enthused. So it's funny. Like, this is the one time that I've picked a movie that, like... <laughs> You really liked, but I was just kind of like, eh. <laughs> like, you know. That's true. We need to, I mean, the closest movies that you and I have had together are like the obvious ones, like Mad Max, The Godfather. Titanic. Titanic. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, I'm really happy that you liked Titanic as much as I did. And I'm glad that you and I actually came to the conclusion that like we like the romance element <laughs> more than we like the second half. We both finally admitted it to each other. We became adults in that point. We were like, God I guess damn it. So. Ugh. 
Anyways, I would like to see more of Orson Welles as an actor, though. I thought yes. he looked great in this movie. I, I very much agree. Um, I So have you, you've obviously watched this and came before as a film student. Yeah, like in film school. So like a long time ago. Yep. I tried watching it once and I was just completely not in the mood for it. And I actually sure. turned it off after about maybe five minutes. I knew right away. I was like, this is not the time to be watching this, a movie like this. So I I agree. I'm I'm very interested in Orson Welles, not only as a an actor, but as a director as well, right? And that's actually a point of contention that I probably should have mentioned earlier, is that there's a lot of rumors and hearsay about this film and whether or not Orson Welles was maybe in more in control of this film than than the, he was given credit for. Um and for example, and this is actually a a true fact that he actually came up with the cuckoo clock quote at some point like somebody had said something similar to him once and he was he had kind of tucked it away in the back of his brain for something to use later but there was a a lot of there's a lot of rumors after this film came out as to whether or not orson wells kind of took over the directing of his scenes and the directing of parts of this film and what's really interesting about that as well is a lot of historians think that it's actually more of a case that Orson Welles was already a pretty prominent director at this point in time and that the director himself was very much inspired by Orson Welles director um his methods and and the way he kind of created a mood and and a set and everything like that that it was more of an actually an inspiration than it was Orson Welles just hopping in there and, and kind of deciding how things would work huh yeah i i think i did read that at some point orson welles did finally just say yeah no i didn't direct this movie yeah he did admit that at some point but there was always still kind of that you know like people don't always believe what they want to what they hear they want to believe what they want to believe right so i guess it's it kind of be like i don't know like i should be it's kind of we're recording this kind of late so i can't think of a better analogy <laughs> but it almost be like if Stephen King was interviewed in a book and people were just like, oh, you actually wrote this book, though, right, Stephen? Like, Stephen King probably wrote this book. Yeah. And then years later, he was like, no, I was just in it. Like, <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> True. That's a, If it were earlier, I could come up with a better analogy than that. But <laughs> here it is. Like, like if Richard Bachman, like, was actually somebody entirely else and Stephen King just took credit for it to help them sell more. Yeah. And it was just his yeah, buddy. I guess so. And then, That's like, a little better. On his deathbed, he was like, actually, there was a rich group, Bachman, and I just and I helped sell him. his novels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I saved your analogy from Thanks. the depths Did of you, though? I feel Vivian like we were both kind of clumsily circling the point. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's it. I will just end on this note that the one thing... You and Jason started this podcast, so technically, I am the third man of Vintage Cinema <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. That's a great yeah. point. Nice. So if we ever bring somebody else on, and they'll be the fourth man. Or woman. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> True. So I think next, we've got the foreign film coming up. Really excited about that. Uh, I don't know if you, Jason, and I will do it together or what the plan will be, but yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to that next. Yeah, me too. Okay, well, until next time. Thanks, sir. Until next time, stay out of the sewers. They're filled with disease. <laughs> and don't buy penicillin from racketeers in the shadows. Yeah, always, always double check your uh, penicillin provider. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>